Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland regional training hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Ben Reeves, a paediatric cardiologist in Cairns Hospital, who is dedicated to rheumatic heart disease in North Queensland. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Thanks so much for being involved in our podcast. We know rheumatic heart disease is a massive problem across North Queensland and is something that we can all be better uh, acquainted with and understand more fully. Can we start by asking you to remind us what is rheumatic fever? Uh, So rheumatic fever is an immune response to streptococcal A infection. Um, So it happens most commonly in childhood uh, and begins um, typically as a group A strep throat infection and pharyngitis, but more recent research has shown that it also happens as a result of skin infection with group A strep. Um, So regardless of the the portal of entry, it's a streptococcal infection that then sensitises the immune system and it, and it seems to take uh, a number of infections for the immune system to be sensitized and then react against the infection and cause acute rheumatic fever. So that's a constellation of symptoms, including fever and joint pains. Um, it causes cardiac valve damage, uh, which is rheumatic heart disease. And, and repeated episodes of acute rheumatic fever appear to cause um, uh, cumulative damage to the heart, and and that's what we worry about as cardiologists. It causes um, valve dysfunction and very severe uh, rheumatic heart disease can lead to death. Yeah, right. We've got to be on top of this in the community and in our emergency departments. So with uh, strep throat and strep skin infections being so common, what are the other risk factors that we know about for developing rheumatic fever? So um, it's really all about that streptococcal uh, exposure. So we know um, that in uh, Australia, um, rheumatic fever happens much, much more often in um, First Nations communities, in in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island uh, communities, um, uh, and they are much more disproportionately affected compared to um, to urban affluent Australia. Uh, so it's a disease of social disadvantage and it's at its roots, it's caused by overcrowding of houses um, and poor access to hygiene and health services. It, it's a disease really that was eradicated from most of Australia in the 50s and 60s, but Despite this, in Indigenous communities, we have some of the highest rates of rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease in the world. So it's really those primordial factors of social disadvantage that are, that are causing this problem. Right. So short of 
completely overhauling uh, our social services system in Australia. Uh, how can we prevent rheumatic fever happening for those most disadvantaged in our community at, from a medical point of view at least? Well, you say short of overhauling our social services, I think that's where we should be leading as a, as a community. I think we should be addressing those primary um, drivers of social inequity and disadvantage. And I think we can do a lot more in improving housing and um, hygiene services in, in remote communities. As health professionals, obviously, that's not always up to us, but we can certainly advocate for that social change. Um, the, the main way that we can intervene is with, is with primary and secondary prophylaxis against um, infection with strep and rheumatic fever. So um, for the people encountering skin infections and sore throats, then timely treatment with penicillin can avoid that progression to acute rheumatic fever. For those people like me in the hospital system, then identifying cases of rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease means that we can enrol children and adults into regular penicillin prophylaxis, and we use intramuscular uh, benzathine penicillin, um, which uh, gives um, coverage and prevents um, infection with group A strep for up to 28 days. So that um, treatment of sore throats and skin sores and then preventing recurrence of rheumatic fever by treating with benzathine penicillin is really the mainstay of hospital treatment and primary care responses to avoid that end-stage um, rheumatic heart disease. So talking about rheumatic heart disease then, Ben, what is the effect of that group A strep on the heart? You mentioned valvular damage. Yeah, so... Um, when we look uh, at the hearts of people affected by rheumatic fever, it causes damage at many different levels. So, uh, so we see um, endocarditis, we see valve dysfunction uh, on the endocardial surface of the heart. We can see effects on the myocardium as well. It affects the conducting system and it can cause um, uh, myocardium uh, weakness and reduced function. And we see pericardial problems as well. In severe rheumatic fever, it can cause pericardial effusion and pericarditis. But really, in children, what I see mostly is, is valve dysfunction and particularly regurgitation of valves, primarily affecting mitral and aortic valves. And that's the acute inflammatory process of rheumatic fever. It causes um, valve leakage and heart failure as a result if it's severe. In its chronic form, we see a change in that inflammatory process to become scarring and contraction of valve leaflets. So then you see uh, stenosis of valves um, and restriction of mitral valve inflow and aortic valve outflow primarily. So it, it mostly affects valves on the left side of the heart and initially causes regurgitation and then causes scarring and stenosis. So then the whole of life uh, impact of rheumatic heart disease is enormous, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And it can start very early in childhood. So we, we do see children as young as three and four years of age uh, present with rheumatic fever. 
Um, and if it's not prevented um, from recurring, then yes, you get progressive valve dysfunction with each episode uh, and you get worsening um, symptoms of heart problems. Um, uh, commonly, rheumatic fever in its early, uh, sorry, rheumatic heart disease in its early stage is frequently asymptomatic and it takes a while and progressive valve damage for them for then to patients to present to um, to health services with symptoms. Uh, so it, it, it's largely a hidden disease. Uh, and as I said earlier, it occurs in, in disadvantaged and often uh, remote populations that find it hard to seek healthcare. Right. So just to summarise then, Ben, we've talked about rheumatic fever being an immune response to group A strep from often a pharyngitis or a skin infection. And it's that repeated infection that tends to create that immune response with whole of body uh, problems like the fever, the joint pain, but particularly the valvular damage as one aspect of the heart impact of rheumatic fever. That um, primary prophylaxis with penicillin first up is incredibly important, but then that regular IAM benzathine uh, penicillin for that secondary prophylaxis is incredibly important then for these uh, members of our community. So Ben, you're just talking about really young children who are experiencing heart disease already when you're seeing them at three or four years old and that it's a hidden disease. How can we go about making sure we find those affected children do you have a screening program that you've been able to successfully implement? Uh, we have, and uh, traditionally screening efforts were really targeted at auscultation of the heart. So we have existing school screening programs in Queensland carried out by child health nurses, um, uh, and they look at hearing and um, vision testing for children. They um, auscultate the heart. Uh, they, they check um, hemoglobin levels and so on. Uh, we know that listening to the heart is neither sensitive nor specific for rheumatic heart disease, however. So uh, there is a large body of evidence in the literature showing that echocardiogram screening for rheumatic heart disease picks up more than 10 times uh, the number of cases that auscultation does. Um, we now have very clear guidelines based on echo uh, characteristics of what rheumatic heart disease looks like. Um, and over the last 15 years or so, I've been involved in a number of uh, projects in Australia and overseas trying to measure the prevalence of rheumatic heart disease using these echo screening studies. And so in the last four or five years, we've been doing this regularly in northern and western Queensland, um, traveling to remote communities, performing echo screening on school children in schools themselves, so we can access a large number of children. And this helps us to identify the burden of rheumatic heart disease, but also most importantly, enroll these children in preventive uh, treatment programs and regular cardiac follow-up so that hopefully we're, we're finding this hidden burden of disease and, and avoiding that, um, those bad outcomes I mentioned earlier. 
That's incredible. What an exciting project to be part of. But Ben, an echo is uh, a really impressive skill for any of our um, staff to undertake and you know yourself from your own training it's a a really specialized area how are you delivering an echocardiogram to so many children in such remote areas Uh, so um, I mean the technology has come a long way so we're using portable um, echocardiogram machines that are approximately the size of a laptop and there are increasingly um, accurate devices that uh, that fit in the palm of your hand to deliver point of care testing. So, so one aspect of this is the technology that's becoming uh, more accessible, um, less expensive, and more portable. Uh, the other aspect of this is training of people to perform uh, brief echocardiograms um, by non non expert op- operators and. And there is an emerging um, amount of evidence that these sorts of interventions can be effective. I think there's still a long way to go with this. Obviously, there's a lot of training required uh, to become really good at this. And we're trying to find the balance between providing expert operators like a cardiologist or a uh, a cardiac sonographer to go out to these remote communities and, and whether the scope of these exercises can be improved by by training other interested um, operators uh, to do this sort of work. So it is exciting. It's um, uh, there's still a lot to work out as to how these sorts of projects should be done. Um, but yes, I think it it does contribute to um, improving outcomes um, and uh, hopefully, you know, saving lives in the future. And ideally, uh, no longer holding top position as the uh, uh, country with the greatest number of young people affected by rheumatic heart disease. That's a frightening statistic. Ben, when you're talking about the group A strep, pharyngitis and impetigo, we do see that so often in general practice or presenting to emergency departments in our smaller centres. We're often looking at people who have a lot of viral symptoms as well. Who should we be offering antibiotics to when we're suspecting it's a viral infection? Should we be more enthusiastic about offering penicillin to those First Nations children just in case it is a group A strep infection? I mean, this is a really good question and it's something that um, people are struggling with um, in Australia and overseas as well. In our setting, probably between about 10 and 40% of pharyngitis that presents will be due to group A strep. So inevitably, if we treat every pharyngitis, we'll be over-treating with antibiotics. Um, And obviously, we need to balance this with the risk of, um, or with the concerns of antimicrobial stewardship and emerging resistance. So uh, there's a lot of... um, decision-making to be done about this. Um, The uh, Australian guidelines for rheumatic fever mention uh, or or have a whole chapter devoted to this essentially, but um, split these patients into high-risk patients um, and low-risk patients. And your high-risk patient would be a Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person living in an area of high prevalence or living in a 
socially disadvantaged setting or living in um, overcrowded households. And for those high-risk um, uh, settings, um, then you apply a, a clinical decision tool for the pharyngitis as it presents. Um, so, for example, um, a child with um, a sore throat and um, enlarged lymph nodes and an appearance of a parallel discharge and absent of absence of cough is much more likely to have group A strep and therefore should receive treatment. I hesitate to give your audience too much um, advice about this because I'm not a primary care doctor and uh, my days of seeing children with sore throats are uh, long behind me, but um, uh, there's a good reference in that uh, rheumatic fever guidelines that can help with that decision-making process and and allocating people to high-risk groups. Also, I think it depends on the setting you're seeing people in. Obviously, up in Cairns and in the Cape and Torres, um, the risk of rheumatic disease is much higher and therefore your threshold for antibiotic treatment would be lower. And I think that's important for the audience to realise that when they're travelling to remote places, the uh, threshold for treatment should be lower for those those people. Sure. So, Ben, it is a bit of a minefield, those sore throats and skin infections. Uh, so can you tell us how well your research is going at the moment? When are we likely to see some outcomes and uh, what are the numbers that we're going to need to be looking at to make a big impact on our community's health services, Ben? Um, so the, the ECHO screening projects that we're doing are targeted really more at clinical outcomes than research. Um, we do have a number of other um, projects that we're collaborating uh, uh, between multiple other sites uh, looking to improve outcomes in this area. Uh, one of the ones we've started recently is looking at MRI diagnosis of acute rheumatic fever, which can, which is likely to be much more sensitive than echocardiograms. And we're collaborating with a team in Melbourne to do that and started recruiting patients already. We're involved in a number of, of other trials um, in very early phase at the moment, looking at biomarkers for acute rheumatic fever uh, with a team in um at Griffith University and um, New England University. And we're also looking at contributing to a multi-centre trial of steroid therapy for Sydenham's career, which is another feature of acute rheumatic fever. So we've got a, a, um, a number of things that we're, we're waiting for uh, to emerge that should hopefully make a difference for the future. Ben, that's an enormous undertaking. I wish you well in your, all of your projects. Just thinking about all the things that we've talked about today, Ben, what would be your top take-home tips for people thinking about rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease in their patients? I think the just the awareness that this disease um, is common um, and can have very significant late effects. Um, and I think your threshold for treating um, skin sores and sore throats should be lower and recognising the potential for rheumatic fever and investigating appropriately is really important. 
And in that, uh, you know, thinking about rheumatic fever, we need a, a number of tests to be performed before we can then make a confident diagnosis, um, including um, blood tests, looking for the inflammatory markers and streptococcal serology. We need an ECG at diagnosis to uh, detect prolonged PR interval, which is a minor criteria for acute rheumatic fever. If all of these tests are done in a timely fashion, then it certainly helps me who may come along a month later and try and look in retrospect to make a diagnosis to potentially put someone onto um, long-term bisillin treatment. And we want to make this diagnosis as accurate as possible because the stakes are quite high. Looking back at our example of a four or five-year-old child, they'll be on bicillin prophylaxis, receiving painful injections every, uh, th sorry, 13 times a year for 15 or 16 years. Um, so it's really important that we get as much information as we can to make an accurate diagnosis and avoid over-treatment, but also provide um, that life-saving treatment that... Um, that will make a difference in the long term. Oh, Dr. Ben Reeves, thank you so much for your time today. It's uh, great to have a bit more of an in-depth understanding about the potential minefield that rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease can be for some of our patients and the research that you're undertaking that should make uh, following up those patients a little bit easier and making sure that we can reduce those health inequities in our community. Dr. Ben Reeves, <clears throat> paediatric cardiologist in Cairns, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, Aboriginal community controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.